acting in the public interest. So collaborative problems, problem solving, action, you know, cross partisanship, anything that would be required in any industry to get the job done and getting reelected, those do not intersect in the politics industry. Welcome to the Independent Riot Podcast, your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. Our goal is to provide you entertaining, intelligent discussion around all of life's most pressing questions without hidden agendas or ulterior motives. So if you're too good for the bad, too bad for the good, and sick of people trying to convince you to join their preferred pyramid scheme this week, you've found your home. Now here's your host, Jim Duncan. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Independent Riot, episode 10. Today's episode is a good one because it's all about solutions, not only getting you new answers, but even helping you to reframe what the actual problems are in modern American politics. We all know that things have gotten too polarized, too divisive, and that things are not optimally functioning in government. But is the answer really to only rally harder around the red or blue team? I would say no, because if we don't start thinking about things differently, how are we going to get any actual, real, lasting new solutions? Today's guest is going to help us do that. He is the executive director of the Institute for Political Innovation. IPI was created by the brilliant reformer and political thinker, Catherine Gale. She and a Harvard researcher named Michael Porter in 2017 authored a study called Competition in the Politics Industry, which opened my mind to new ways of looking at what the problem is with American modern government and therefore what real new solutions could be. And today's guest is going to kind of help bring everybody up to speed on that new way of looking at things and hopefully gives you some additional answers rather than just feeling like all you can do is become a even more loyal supporter of the Republicans or Democrats. And to be clear, as we discuss in the episode, this isn't saying that you can't be a Republican or Democrat. In my mind, it's just about prioritizing some things, including the function of overall government, slightly higher than being a loyalist to the Republicans or Democrats. And after this discussion, if you do feel like you'd like to get more insight on this kind of new, evolved way of thinking of American politics, please consider checking out not only the 2017 study by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter, which is free and I'll link to in the show notes below along with their book and the website for the Institute for Political Innovation, but then also you can check out Um, the third episode of this podcast actually called Dumping the Duopoly with with, uh, independent voter news editor, national editor, Sean Griffiths, where we get into some great conversations about these same concepts that I think that talk with him can additionally add a lot of insight into this way of thinking. Now, before we get to the interview, if you wouldn't mind, please like this video, subscribe to the channel, and consider letting another independent thinker know about it because that really helps us to spread the ideas and raise awareness for the channel. And now, without further ado, the innovative, the articulate executive director of the Institute for Political Innovation. Saul Lieberman. So uh, the first thing I'd probably ask is if you could just give a little bit of an overview of what the Institute for Political Innovation is doing, what the objective is. Sure, I can happy to do it. So the Institute for Political Innovation or IPI 
is a cross-partisan um, nonprofit organization that we launched in, I think about January, February of 2020 in advance of Catherine's book, uh, which re- she wrote with Michael Porter from Harvard Business School, The Politics Industry, which was coming yep. out and did come out in June of 20. So the thinking was that Catherine has been in theory and scholarship and really building politics industry theory over you know several years and getting to a place with the book coming that was you know wonderful capstone in that work but really hungry for it to produce more than conversation and you know many of those intellectual conversations which are valuable but action and yep. so how do you do that so when you're i mean she's a businesswoman she's a former ceo so you're creating demand right with with an idea and with a book and it there is credibility behind it so how do you capture that demand and do something with it? And, yep. you know, that is the, the, what's what makes Catherine, you know, I joke with our organization. She's really a unicorn that we're, we, we think maybe in some of our work, we're going to find more Catherines in other states. I, I think that hypothesis is broken. There's one of her and then we'll get lucky to get <laughs> close. Um, she understands this, th- that this is a continuum from ideas to action. So IPI is built to not only put give a home for politics industry theory where we can um, you know, harness it and advance it, but have an arm that when folks raise their hand, whether it's in Alaska or Arkansas and say, I, I'm into this, I want to do this. I have a community already. I have access. I want to put my agency to work. What do I do? Well, now we have an organization. I just got off the call with our director of campaigns and in a, in a, in a group of leaders in a state who have followed that process. They had demand, we could help you know, do something with it. So we're providing a blueprint for folks to start campaigns for the core reform that we're focused on, which is final five voting, this mix of okay. open top five primaries and ranked choice voting in general elections for Congress, for federal delegations. So now IPI can help uh, with when that demand is grabbed, give them support so they can start up, um, but these aren't going to be satellites of IPI. These have to be local, 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 like we say in the book, local, local, local. So we can okay. help them along and then ideally win. So it's really, you know, theory and scholarship and then action and supportive action toward final five voting. So Catherine likes to joke, joke for all intents and purposes. This year, you can call us the final five voting institute because it's really what we're really <laughs> focused on in 21. And that's and um, I definitely like to get into more of the specifics of um, what those solutions are to get people's brains around them. Um, but before we go to that, I was going to ask maybe if you could get into a little bit more of the politics industry theory sure. and help bridge the gap so people get what the problem is, like what yeah everybody senses. There's a uh, a problem. Everybody kind of senses that the old solutions of rallying harder behind a Republican or a Democrat is not addressing all of the the issues. So how does politics industry theory give us a new way of looking at that? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So um, again, this is the, the, you know, the book, the politics industry is the place to go for folks who want to learn more um, and the great, one of the best things, I, my favorite things about the book is all the proceeds from that, all the profit from Catherine and Michael are donating back to the Institute. So really you're, okay. you're investing in action either way. Um, so the core of it is really about healthy competition. So what Catherine has done so well and has articulated so well is that politics is not some sacrosanct institution that was passed down from us from Jefferson and Adams and Washington and whomever that is you know, immutable that we can't do anything about. Um, Politics today is acts and functions like any other industry, whether it's food and beverage or footwear. And most of the rules and practices and norms that dictate how it functions have have been written and optimized by the actors themselves, by politicians over generations now. Those aren't brought to us, you know, from given to us from the constitution. They really, policy has been written along the way. And as rational actors do, you know, people in any industry, they respond to incentives. So many of those rules have been written by Democrats and Republicans alike to do one important thing, which is kind of protect their power, protect how the industry functions. So rules 
practices and norms written for the benefit of the politicians, much more so from the benefits of us. So that really gets to this core thing of politics industry theory, which it's it's an industry. The actors themselves write the rules. And so the, the incentives for that industry aren't now constructed so that, Jim, you and I get great benefit from everything um, they do. It's, yeah. it's quite the opposite. So one of the things that Catherine talks a lot about is there's this Venn diagram of acting in the public interest. So collaborative problems, problem solving, action, you know, cross-partisanship, anything that would be required in any industry to get the job done and getting reelected, those do not intersect in the politics industry, yep. right? Oftentimes doing your job, solving a problem, like if you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican and we work together, we're probably going to get primaried. We might lose and, and lose our job. So in this industry, these actors are not incentivized to do their job because of how elections are designed. And now we're getting into that machinery component of politics industry theory. So A, it's an industry and it functions accordingly. And like any industry, there are rules of the game. There's this critical machinery. And what politics industry helps us do, because we're thinking about how do we create healthy competition so that Representative Jim Duncan is empowered to be a great problem solver? How do we free you up to be that ideal um, legislator is identify these critical rules of the games that are really producing these perverted incentives. So that gets to, and then the work that we're doing, um, our elections machinery. So the, that's this core problem is pro, uh, these closed primaries and yep. plurality voting, this two-step. So that's really, if you pull it all down, when you get from politics industry and incentives to rules of the game, those are the two critical rules, the big problem, and that's what we're focused right now on fixing. Okay, excellent. And that's um, something that I think that is crucial to highlight to people is that what you're talking about, the solutions you're offering are not a, it's not a Republican solution. It's not a Democratic solution. It is a cross-partisan, as you've said, solution. It's about reframing the way you look at politics where you're helping the entire system to work better, not just one side. So if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, you should actually be rooting for this, for these solutions. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, again, there are, you know, one of the things we talk about and part of the reason we founded an Institute is if the, if we are lucky enough to have these changes made and in the short term, um, people are people, and and there will be people in this space who aim to unmake them, push against them, or try new things. So um, I don't want to paint this picture that you know you you snap your fingers and all of a sudden Republicans and Democrats are singing kumbaya and working yep. together. Like you know pe people are going to be people about it. But that said, there are more and more. And in the forward of our book was was co co-authored by Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican in Wisconsin. And Representative uh, Chrissy Houlihan, a Democrat in Pennsylvania, you know, members of uh, House of Representatives, and they were veterans. They both served our country. And in the four, they write about how it is a strange feeling and phenomenon to go from being on the same team together, you know, fighting to protect our country, to then separating into these warring parties and really have this enemy-like relationship as legislators. And so they you know, why they're supportive of this work is they want to be able to do their jobs. They want to be able to solve problems. And they know that that requires conversation. Like Catherine often talks about, like in the corporate world, if you had a problem to solve, you wouldn't go into the boardroom and then separate into warring teams to get it done. <laughs> and that's, that is, again, that is the unhealthy competition. That's the product of these really old perverted practices that we have to unmake. And here's the best part about it is we can. Article one of the constitution gives states the power to decide how their elections work. So yep. this is a doable thing. And that's one of the beauties of, of politics industry theory is we really focus on what's powerful and achievable. So whether if you, there are lots of conversations about redistricting, you know, changing gerrymandering, campaign finance reform, or even term limits. Yep. Um, we argue that the beauty of final five voting, which is unmaking these, this, this elections machinery of these closed party primaries and plurality voting, these winner-take-all, first-past-the-post elections, um, that is actually doable and can have the greatest benefit.
Okay. And now maybe if you wouldn't mind, actually, like before we get into the the specifics of you hopefully explaining more what final five voting is and the issues with plurality voting, just um, maybe do you, can you sort of summarize like how you came to be at the Institute for Political Innovation and kind of your own background that's led you? Yeah. Yeah. So I've worked uh, cause oriented, not-for-profit for most of my career. Um, I was a, a trained journalist. I got my master's in journalism from Northwestern here in Chicagoland. And then over the last 10 plus years, I've worked in nonpartisan, nonprofit newsroom environments that are doing good government journalism. Um, and there, that is a fertile field here in Illinois. I don't know how closely you yep. follow <laughs> Illinois politics, but I, I think there's some real embarrassing statistic I think there's like three or four out of the last five or six governors have found their way to prison so there's a lot of good journalism to be done to like shine a light and hold people accountable so I've done a lot of that and then in between I worked in public education on a founding team that built um, really high performing school and then a second campus for for high need families in Chicago so um, in, in the summer of 2019 I really started to feel like I'd been beating my head against the wall, working in like, you know, good government reform, working in public education, you know, trying to at the at more of the ground level, you know, make some change and, and get to a more deliberative democracy that, you know, our kids deserve and feeling like, God, am I actually doing anything? Yeah. And um, I was working on a, a study and a piece with, for the Chicago Tribune that I ended up I ended up not publishing on ranked choice voting because. I saw what had happened in the mayoral election in 2018 in Chicago, where we had 18 candidates. We had a you know a plurality winner in the first round with Lori Lightfoot getting, I think, barely 17% of the vote, and then moving to a runoff and just feeling like whether I'm excited about Lori winning or not, um, was that the right system? Yeah. So I was working on this piece. I was interviewing some folks. I came to Catherine and her work. And we met, I was, you know, interviewing her and really quickly within a couple hours, she had done something for me, which hadn't been done in a long time, has made me think there is some work that we can do at a national level through politics, industry theory and what she was building that maybe could make me feel like I've, I've done something that really could help produce change. Um, and so I was really inspired and imbued by that. And so she brought me on board. I got to help and support the work on the book with her and Michael and then conceive of and start leading this institute. So I feel very blessed to be doing it. And my belief has not wavered, which is, you know, I come from journalism, which has a healthy, you know, instinct for skepticism, but I, I, um, it just, it keeps checking all my boxes, Jim. Yeah. Well, that did. That's uh, similar to me as far as the politics industry theory. Like I was, I knew there was an issue, but could not figure out what the solution was on my own end, like whenever I looked into it more, everything was always filtered through the lens of supporting a political party, Mm -hmm. which intuitively then did not seem to support the actual solution I was looking for, because it was like you had to be part of the system in order to correct the system. And then you're doing a loop where you're actually feeding into the dysfunction of the system. And so I started trying to figure out rationally what the answer was to make things better. And that's when I came across uh, uh, Catherine and Michael's uh, 2017 study that the book was eventually based on. And when I read that, I was just like, ah, now I get it. This is the, this is the correct thing to be fighting for. You had your, you had your light bulb moment. Yeah. And that's the, um, and I think, that's what I, I'm trying to do with some of these shows on our uh, podcast is to highlight this idea and make that light bulb uh, moment connect with other people. And um, w- would you say uh, this is a good description of kind of what the shift in thinking is um, with politics industry theory instead of being a participant in the game as much? you're sort of switching your brain to be a little bit more of an umpire of the game to actually increase the integrity, the function of the entire system rather than prioritizing one side or the other winning. It's like a agnostic way of looking at politics for lack of another term. 
It's an interesting setup using, um, you know, baseball, at, you know, America's game to think about how we're looking at this. And so my, my first instinct is, you know, we're thinking about, you know, the American people as in the stadium, right? That's kind yeah. of the setup as fans. Yeah. The, the first the first comment I would make is that um, the game doesn't have to be played that way. And we have a say. Yeah. Right. And so in the current game of politics, baseball, the players themselves and this is a little bit stretched because it's, you know, are they players? Are they coaches? You know, yeah, it's, a little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always a little challenging to yeah. get a perfect fit, but they're deciding like balls and strikes. They're deciding the batting order, all that. And we decide that they're even on the field in the first place. Right. So that is, yeah. there's that dissonance there. So, you know, Catherine tells this story and it's in the book and she tells it. And, and so I'll, I'll parrot her and um, cause it's a good one, but there's this, this, you know, old story of these two fish who are, swimming alone and along in the ocean two young fish and an older fish swims by and says say boys how's the water and then he keeps going and then they keep swinging along and they look at each other and one of them says what what the heck is water yeah and so <laughs> that really is our political system that we just accept we let it wash over us as normal and it doesn't have to be that way the game on that's on the field doesn't have to be played that way so that's thing yep. a thing b um you know are does that make us then umpires I think it just makes us makes us active fans instead of passive fans. Okay. Right. And then you can cheer for, you know, the Yankees or the Red Sox. That can still you retain your political identity, retain your ideology and your approach to policymaking. That's healthy. Um, you know, there while the founders and framers had had some anxiety about factionalism and political parties, it's something that, you know, George Washington talked about in his famous farewell address. And Adams and Jefferson, you know, there are plenty of quotes going around about him, some of them apocryphal or some of them yep. true. But, you know, there is a value to having a party system. They, you know, consolidate ideas, they create a platform, a way to distribute information. You know, it is hard for, for Americans and voters to come to some of these conclusions about what's a good policy, what's a good approach, who to vote for. So par parties have some value for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, politics industry and Final Five is, has nothing to do with you know, changing the nature of the system. It's making sure the system is healthy. That is, okay. that is t table stakes. Make sure that game you're watching is healthy. Yep. And then there'll be better players. The yep. game will be more fun to watch and we'll leave. And, and you know, the, the tickets will be an equitable price. You can bring your whole family. The hot dogs will be made organically, you know, whatever. <laughs> now I'm really pushing on this, but we can have a better game, a better country. And like any industry, it starts with healthy competition. Starts with healthy competition. Yeah. So, and that that's that's yeah important to clarify and highlight that you guys are not anti-party. You're not yeah. anti because political parties definitely serve a purpose. So the idea is to not say political parties are bad. You're just basically trying to enhance the function of the system so the best players get on the field for those political parties and. The, the stances they take and all of that, is, there's, there's an accountability and integrity to them. And the way that's done is through bringing more competition into the system, like genuine competition. Yeah. So if you're, you know, I've used this before, but there's, there's healthy competition in the footwear industry. So you have multiple rivals at the center of that industry, whether it's Nike or Reebok or whomever. Yeah. And if they aren't doing a good job, you know, seeing how their customers, what the customers want, how they're responding to the products, how the channels, whether it's the stores online or brick and mortar are selling their product. Um, there is always a possibility for a new competitor to come in or a substitute. So see something like Allbirds come up and all of a sudden, you know, I don't know if they're actually how much market share they have, but that is a healthy industry, but that doesn't yeah. happen. We don't get new competitors. We don't get pressure on the two rivals, this duopoly. So by creating healthy competition, um, they have to be then responsive to the customers. That's us. That's us, yeah. the voters. And, and right now they're not. And that plays out. I mean, the, the critical step here is really this party primary, right? So across the country, in most primary elections, um, they are dominated by a very slim layer of the voters, many of whom skew really ideological, very extreme, and they're mm -hmm. really connected to special interests. And they decide who gets through to the general election. Right. And I think in almost 80 percent of House races, the winner is decided in the primary. Yeah. But that doesn't that is that is, a again, a very small slice of who we are. And what that's doing is it's pulling candidates further and further to left and right. 
because in order to get through those primary races, they have to appease those partisan, highly extreme gatekeepers. Yeah. Again, very small layer of people. So then what happens if you then shift to, you know, Jim, you've been elected by a really extreme band of your party in, in a primary, right? You're in a legislative environment, a bill gets to your desk and you're considering whether to, you know, vote for it or not. So you would think that, you know, Representative Duncan's going to look at that and say, is this a good idea? Is it good for my constituents? Is it good for the country? Does the, does the money shake out and then vote yeah. for it? No. The first question you're going to ask is, am I going to get primaried if I vote for this? Because it's a cross-partisan bill, right? Yeah. And that is that is the sort of Damocles that hangs over all these candidates. I mean, you're already seeing it play out after everything over the last couple months with, you know, in, in this case, Republicans, you know, making their vote on everything around the sixth and impeachment immediately primary threat. Yeah. You're hearing that right off the bat. So yeah. that is just not a functional environment to make decisions and legislate. So get rid of that. Make these open primaries where more people can go through upwards of five. And then in the general election, use ranked choice voting so you can sort, right? So yep. the voters can say, I like Jim one, I like Saul two, and I like Stacy three. Then you have more accountability, you get rid of the spoiler effect. And then all of a sudden you're back in Congress and you're like, yeah, I can actually think about this bill. I can actually call Saul across the aisle and we can work together yep. on this and I can make a healthy decision because I'm not worried that my career will be over if I, God forbid, work with the other party. Yeah. And, and that... Uh... Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is a like if you look at party line voting in Congress, there has definitely been an upward trend on staunch party line voting throughout Congress over the past like three decades or so. Like I think it, this has not always been the way it's been. And I think that's yeah. where people have a disconnect a little bit is they think, well, we've always had two parties, so it's working exactly like it's always worked. That was good enough. But that's incorrect, right? Yeah, I and mean, particularly as it relates to significant legislation. So there's this wonderful chart in the book, which I'm now flipping pages through, and if I can find it you know, quickly enough, I'll share. But it basically, it looks at critical pieces of legislation over the last hundred years. Yeah. So, you know, think Social Security. Oh, here we go. So think, you know, Social Security in 1935, you had um, a mix of yay votes, Republican and Democrat. It leaned Democrat, but you had a, a good contingent of Republicans. Highways, interstate highway system in 1956 under Eisenhower, pretty much split 50-50. Yeah. And that changed the nature of our country. Civil rights is the same. Medicare, pretty close. Welfare reform in 1966. You know, that lean more Republican, but a healthy percentage of Democrats voting. Get to 2010, Affordable Care Act, party line. Dodd-Frank in 2010, party time. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, 17, party line votes. Yeah. So what do we have in front of us? Not to, you know, put pandemic aside, you know, our infrastructure is crumbling. Like, you know, we have a digital economy. What do we, how are we going to solve these massive problems in front of us if these problem solvers can't get together to solve problems? It's a little bit of a tautology. But yeah, you're totally right. This is not the way of, you know, classical American lawmaking. And that's what uh, yeah, I think sometimes people get so used to relying on party line ideology that they forget how government is supposed to work and that Congress, the Senate, the House of Representatives, their function is to deliberate, to discuss those yeah concepts of legislation. So you to, to have a staunch party line vote on everything just essentially means the function of those institutions is no longer, it's not fulfilling what it's supposed to do. We're supposed to have everybody in there discussing their idea. You get to pick your representative that you believe in to represent you most accurately, but then the ideas are supposed to go and listen to the other side. Right. And, and if you look at, and there's data on this, if you look at how polarized, particularly the House, for example, is getting, right, if you, so you think about this dimension, right, they're further and further away. And that does not match, match with us, the people. We're much more of a bell curve. Yeah. You know, if this is centrism and then you're going out to Republican and Democrat, we're much more of a bell curve. 
So this is the product of party primaries because the party primary voters, again, they decide 80% of the elections, they are like this. Yeah. So then the reps are starting to match that. So if how do you get back to this is eliminate that that per, that, that perverted party primary system, you know, make the general election really matter because right now the general election doesn't even matter. Yeah. Um, and then and then get to a place where, and again, it isn't about representation for representation's sake. And that is, I think, in the reform community, something that's easy to say, because it is a good thing. I mean, I don't think anybody would say having, you know, Saul and Jim better represent their constituents or the country wouldn't be. It is a good thing. But can they solve problems? So yeah. there are, and that's why the, the partnership of getting rid of these closed party primaries and getting rid of plurality voting is essential because together you get representation, but then you get problem solving. And that's exactly what you're talking about. That is our that's what we're here to do. That's what these people should be here to do. Not us. We're actually not. It's just hypothetical. We're not representatives. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, you and I know that. Yeah. That's in the book. Um, Catherine, I believe, mentions, Catherine and Michael mentioned that um, there is the, the dual, there's the election issue of who we're sending. But then as we're already discussing, there's also the governance legislation issue yes. once they get there. And this is something that um, has actually started to fascinate me more because I think it's so closed off for a lot of Americans. I don't know um, if how familiar you are with the mechanics of that, but like, can you speak to a little bit of some of those legislature legislature difficulties in? functioning in the way they're supposed to. And like what I'm thinking to, off the top of my head is that when I read like uh, Mickey Edwards book, uh, The Parties Versus the People, mm-hmm. he talks about many of the things within, you know, like the House of Representatives, like simple things like they actually are seated on opposite sides of like of of the Capitol and like have different washrooms or the ways that committees work and all like do you have any insight that you can break down for like the average listener of how legislation and cross-partisan deliberation goes wrong once yeah it's in there? So a couple important things to start with. The first is that it's it's not one party's fault. Again, yeah, this is there have been periods where the Democrats and the Republicans have made changes to the rules, norms, and practices of you know of governance in our legislative machinery that you know at the time was to their benefit, the the party in power toward whatever they're trying to accomplish. But then over time, the cascade has been really negative toward our country and how we can actually do things. So that's everything from how you're assigned to a committee, right? Is it based on seniority or is it based on, um, you know, something that the speaker uh, has, a, has a preference about or a motive toward, right? It, it, it's, you know, there, there are sort of common laws like the Hastert rule, which is that this, the speaker won't call a bill to a vote unless a majority of his or her conference would vote for it, even yeah. if the majority of the body entire would pass it. Yeah. So, you know, that really slows, you know, mucks up the gears. Um, and then there's just a, a basic, um, I think, rhythm throughout our, our chambers of Congress of how do you slow things down? How do you prevent collaboration? How do you, you know, how do you muck it up so it isn't an, an active process? And so one of the things we propose in the book is sort of, you know, you think about zero-based budgeting, right? Which is if you and I are running a business, we're going to start from zero, look at everything and then build up from there and, and not, not work on these poor assumptions. Um, so how do we do that in Congress? How do we kind of start from zero and say, if we were going to build a legislative body that was in keeping with today, not like weighed down by these sort of arcane practices or those that were written by people with really, um, you know, backward incentives, what would it really look like? What should it look like to make laws in America today? So let's start from zero. But again, and this is, this is another piece of important connection is on by the passage of final five voting, all of a sudden you and I are sent to Congress with a different incentive structure. And we're also going to look at it and be like, well, this is a really stupid process. 
let's change it. Yeah. Um, and without that, what is the incentive to change it? Because it's again, those things are connected. So it's our focus on Final Five alone now is intentional because then, you know, people like Representative Mike Gallagher and Chrissy Houlihan, you know, if they want to be able to do their jobs more effectively, if there is a fulcrum of people like them, then they're empowered to look at all of some of these common laws and some of them that are actually written in and say, we can do it better. Now there are groups that are working. I mean, there is a house committee um, that has been funded and, and supported by some great groups who are looking to kind of unmake some of this, but it can go much further and farther. So that would yeah. be kind of, you know, let's see how, how quickly we can get some change in terms of this elections machinery and then get to the legislative piece. Yeah. And that is interesting that it all, uh, like, as you guys are reiterating, it all the problem starts at the core is that potentially being primaried issue. And so because that is what creates the incentive and then all of the things, even the legislation issues all stem off of that, of that if, so maybe you can get into explaining how final five voting works and how it would remove that threat of getting primaried and that, that uh, less than ideal way that an ex- the most extreme party members are ending up selecting the winners basically for every every seat. Yep. Yep. And, exactly. Yeah, and and how would it? So, um, yeah, can you get into a little bit of how final five voting works and how that sure. would change that? Sure. And yeah, absolutely. And I know it's hard. It's my tendency. I, I always want to keep pulling it back to final five because that's just you know yeah. front of mind. So how it currently works is you are going to pull in most states, right? And this is again for federal delegations. We're not looking at state legislators for lots of reasons. Our focus is you know the, the yeah. people that we're sending to um, House and Senate. So you're going to pull likely pull a Republican or a Democrat ballot. And if you even do that again, you're probably a very small percentage of of the electorate, and you're going to, you know, punch a person, and then that person's going to go on to the general election, where they're likely have, you know, one other person, or maybe running unopposed in that general. And because of how these house districts shake out, uh, more than likely, you know, you that was the 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 primaries decided who's going to get through. Yeah. So our proposal is let's unmake that open primary. Anybody can run in this primary election, um, and then upwards of five people can go on to the general. So as was the case with Lisa Murkowski, you know, she got primaried a, a cycle or two ago and then had to write her name in that had, she had to win by write in in the general because she had such big name ID her literally, I think her marketing campaign was just how to spell her name. That's all <laughs> it took. But you know, she was this, uh, there are lots of examples like this, Mike Castle in, um, I think it was Delaware um, you know, even Eric Canner and I think it was 2014, um, or earlier, maybe it was 2010, um, examples of people who would win the general election, but can't get past those partisan gatekeepers. Right. So with this change, then, you know, the primary, the nature of the primary totally changes and you get into the general. So now in the general election, we get rid of plurality voting, which is, with the current structure, you know, you vote for one person. So if there's another person in a race between you and I, Jim, we only need 34% to win, which would mean, you know, 66% didn't vote for us. Yeah. So with instant runoff voting, or which is a way of calculating ranked choice, if these five people that have gotten their way to the general, we're going to vote first, second, third, fourth, and hopefully fifth. And then when in the results, the whoever finishes fifth, fifth place we're going to reallocate votes from that fifth place voter. So whoever, you know, if you voted for that person second, those votes would be reallotted and reallotted again yeah. until you find a winner. There's a, you know, Catherine has a really good TEDx on this that, that has some nice animations and a really good visual. It's a great way of describing it. So I don't know if you can throw it in the description yeah. for that, but that's a, it's, it's the best way to look at it. Okay. Um, and so then you are able to take advantage of the primary and get a sense of who's really, you know, representative. And also this is the best, one of the best parts about it is if Jim, you care when you're campaigning about who votes you second or third or fourth, you actually have to campaign to the whole electorate, not just to that plurality. That's yeah. yeah. If you only need 34%, you're only, you're, you know, your political operatives are going to slice out. Okay. Who's the people we need to care about everybody else who cares. 
But with ranked choice, you have to be considered about you considerate of everybody because you want to you want people to vote you second or third, right? Yeah, and that that I think is a uh, a huge point that it it and sort of uh, is uh, in tandem with just the the overall idea of the politics industry theory. It's the competition. Improving the competition changes the way people campaign. It changes the rhetoric. It changes. It improves all those things. So they've got to address a broader uh, segment of a, of the American population. So as a, people wonder what's going wrong now with our highly charged political re- rhetoric, polarization, all, a lot of that is because of the system that we've got where the most extreme slivers control the election. But if we change that through final five voting and ranked choice voting, it fundamentally changes things. So you can't get elected by appealing to just that sliver. You've got to appeal to a broader base because as you said, it, it matters that you're the second choice. I would say, hopefully, as it relates to, I, you know, politics is politics. There's going to be mudslinging. I can't imagine all of a sudden that we're going to have these, you know, really nice, kind campaigns. I think that stuff's still going to happen. Yeah. And it's probably okay because, you know, if we have disagreements about issues, and that's one of the, again, one of the important reasons why this isn't about, you know, getting rid of Democrats or Republicans. You know, disagreement is healthy. A deliberative democracy is healthy. We have big issues in front of us. We should disagree about them and then work on them together. The critical piece is problem solving. Again, at the end of the day, if if you if you change that incentive structure and then you're actually empowered as a leader to solve something, that's where we need to be. If, yeah. if they're still if they're going to yell each other still in the campaign, I would be happy to accept that still as long yeah. as then they can go work. You know, people can work together. Yeah, and um. Do you think, or are you guys focused on it at all? Uh, the do you think they should? Uh, we should be using ranked choice voting for the presidential election. Hmm. I don't have a fully formed point of view there. It's uh, it's there's a lot going on, obviously, with yeah, you know, the electoral college and just the nature of the presidency. The thing I would say is, you know, the one thing that almost everybody agrees on, uh, on and, and any whatever their party ID is that. Congress is not working, right? Yep. Congress is broken. There are, you know, people don't necessarily think the presidency is broken yep. um, at, at the same level. And I also think the presidency, you know, I think it, it's fair to propose that this last administration was a little bit of an outlier yep. um, in some ways. Uh, I don't want to get too deeply into that for lots of reasons. Um, but um, it's sort of a trailing indicator to the unhealth in our democracy. Yeah. Um, and if you can make significant change to the incentive structure for House and Senate, my gut, I, you know, I, a gut I think that could be offered is that the presidency will sort of follow, which yeah. isn't to say that I think the Electoral College is working perfectly and you couldn't also institute reforms in the presidency. But this goes back to powerful and achievable. Like, what can we do that will make a difference and how doable is it? And so you take Article one, states have the power to change their election cycle. Here's what we can do with final five. We have a limit win in Alaska to work off of now that final four, which is a sibling to final five was just passed. So let's focus on that. And then, you know, maybe approach the presidency later. Again, you know, one of the reasons I'm really drawn to Catherine in the work is we're not doing 10 things. We're doing one thing. Yeah. Right. Let's get one thing done. Yeah. Out of curiosity, now that you just uh, said, let's get one thing done, if I can take a, a left turn and change and uh, ask your input of uh, what do you think about money in politics and hmm. where does that play into this? And are there any, even though you guys are primarily right now focused just on, on final five voting and ranked choice voting, is there any component of the, any reforms uh, regarding money in politics that it, that you guys would support or will be looking at in the future? Great question. Um, you know, personally, like most people, I, I mostly hate money in politics. I don't know if I am a, would be a supporter of public campaigns or I'm not quite sure. You know, I do, there's the legitimacy around the, you know, money is speech and businesses 
um, our people. You know, th that is yeah. high level constitutional law that I won't, you know, pretend that I know how to dissect. But all, I mean, again, that also gets back to powerful and achievable, which is you're going to need a constitutional amendment to get rid of, you know, campaign finance. So, um, or Citizens United. So that's just is a lot. Yeah. Um, but we do, you know, there, the Catherine and Michael do write in the book, um, and it's probably one of the more t uh, technical sections, but about a dual political concurrency. And um, that, to me, I think is a really powerful argument around how, again, Final Five voting can help to obviate or mitigate some of these concerns about um, money in politics, in that because of the current election structure, um, money is worth more than votes. Yeah. Now that that's a little bit of a you know it's the it's sort of a little bit of a dance to understand, but because you have these really small groups of voters, again, it's like fifteen percent of the voting aid, voting eligible electorate in these primaries voting, uh, just a little bit of money and a little bit of special interest push can you know get a candidate into office. Yeah. Effectively, because again, eighty percent of these house races are decided in the primary, so. In that instance, that little bit of money is worth more than votes. So how do you, we believe, and we argue that with final five voting, votes is more powerful than money. Yeah. Right? So make the vote valuable. Make the general election mean something. Make the party primary not the deciding election. And then how does that change the influence or impact of money? Mo money will always have an influence. Yeah. You know, you're, people are going to need to buy ads, and get, especially in this, you know, media climate where it's not like everybody's watching the same nightly news with, you know, Walter Cronkite and everybody's reading the same local paper or national paper. You know, there's so many different ways to get information. So you're going to need to figure out how to get your voice and your ideas out there. But then, you know, you have people like Andrew Yang, great examples, I think, of folks who are mastering those new platforms. Yeah. Um, so now I'm sort of stretching into like getting out the vote, which is just another topic. But yeah, to your question of money, um, you know, I think Final Five can do stuff there that, that is really beneficial. Yeah, and it I, that's uh, I remember that from the book as well, and that struck me the vote to money imbalance. Like when you're mm -hmm. looking at the system, that that those are the two currencies, votes and money. And right now, it's heavily skewed to money. And so, if we correct the power of the vote, make everyone's vote more impactful that will sort of necessarily then reduce a little bit of money's influence. I, um, Which uh, does, but I, I should add, you know, this isn't a panacea and yeah. it, this doesn't mean all of a sudden that turnout is going to double or triple, you know, overnight. The hope would be that if people are starting to see their vote is, is worth something and it translates to problem solving that they're more inclined to participate. But the then you start getting into questions of you know broad uh, apathy about democracy levels of civic civic engagement. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you had something like a hundred million people didn't vote in the in like the twenty sixteen presidential election that were eligible to. So yeah. that that is another massive problem. But maybe we can win back some trust with a healthy system. Well, and that, that's what I think is so fascinating about the politics industry theory and what you guys are trying to do is that it gives people who are potentially burnt out on politics because they only, they think they've got to be on one extreme side or the other, or then they disengage. And this gives them a way to conceptually get involved in politics again, I think, without having to be on one of those extreme sides, if that doesn't seem right to them. So that's what's fascinating to me about it is I think it is sort of the language and idea that can get people back into being engaged, trying to make the system overall healthier, rather if they're burnt out on trying to get either the red or the blue team to win. Yeah, you know, people are tired of these lesser of two evil elections where they have to pick the person they dislike the least. Yeah. And, you know, get to a system where you have more folks that you can consider and then rank them. I mean, you know, there is there are plenty of voices, you know, many of them, I think, either dishonest or um, have another interest that's funding their work or support or pushing their work 
that say that rank choice is too complicated, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, I do it with my wife, you know, once a week when we are, when we decide we're going to order some food, yeah. I have a burger. If I can't have a burger, I'll have pizza. If I can't have pizza, Chinese. What about you? Yeah. You know, and in, in across the country, there are parents who use rank choice systems to try to help, you know, when they have these open lotteries for public schools, right, where they have yeah. limited enrollments. And so they say, oh, I'd go to this school, if not that one, this one, if not that one, this one. So people are People are predisposed to this and it gives them, they don't have to enter these elections um, with this orientation of, okay, who do I hate? Who, who isn't with me? Right. And then who's yeah. the person I have to be with can be about ideas. And then, and here's the other great thing is with ranked choice, you, you get rid of the spoiler effect. So, you know, classic example, and this ties back to healthy competition and what this can do to how things work. You know, you go back to Ross Perot, which is, you know, I actually kind of remember a little bit from, yeah. you know, being old enough to watch it on the TV. You know, you remember in 92, or I think it was with running as a, you know, as an independent against Bush, um, you know, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, businessman from Texas who self-funded his campaign. You know, he was able to put enough money in to get on some of those stages and be part of that discussion. And he got 19 percent of the vote. And as a result of that. Um, you know, he didn't win any electoral votes. He's not going to, wasn't going to be president. He knew that, but he forced, and Paul Begala and Clinton have talked about this. They looked at, um, you know, their fiscal discipline, how they're looking at budgets differently, because they knew that 19% of the vote was up for grabs in the next election, and they knew yeah. what they cared about, right? So with ranked choice, you get to have those ideas put forth, and then the, each of those ideas can build constituencies, and then the winner ultimately has to be concerned for them. Um, but as it is currently set up with plurality, Unless you're Ross Perot and you have billions of dollars, there's no way to even get in the game. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. going to hear your idea, you know? So it's just another way of healthy competition. You can be a competitor. You can come in. The customers can think about you. They can consider buying your product. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's just amazing. Like when you start to get into this and read Catherine and Michael's book and really get your head around it, you start to see just how dysfunctional and kind of stuck the system is and how what you guys are trying to do is basically just make it loosen up those gears to get the system to work the way it potentially ideally could, which benefits everybody. It's uh, across yeah. the board. Yeah. I was at an event. This is interesting. I was, at least how you phrase it. And I was at an event in 2017, maybe. Um, where Chuck Todd from Meet the Press was asking questions you know, on a dais in front of a thousand people about like the politics of the day. And he commented in response to a question that a big part of the issue was, quote unquote, the best and the brightest aren't running anymore. Um, I don't know if that's true. And it's sort of butchering the phrase best and the brightest continues to be butchered over years yeah. and years. Um, but you know, I have friends who, and I'm sure you have them too, or people you've met along your life. You're like, God, that, that, that woman needs to run for office. You know, she's, she's, you know, moral and brilliant and um, calm and leaderly and no chance she ever would. Cause who yeah. the hell is going to go do that? Yeah. And so, you know, another gut that I have here, and we outline this to some degree, it's outlined to some degree in the book that by Catherine and Michael, that the benefits of this is if you are one of those special people this who is a statesman um if you have a healthy election system and you have then down the road a healthy lawmaking practice that's much more appealing and you can yeah. actually yeah. do something and so you know hopefully that will do more to also not attract some of those other folks who have uh you know different um motives yeah excellent well i think we're getting close to uh running out of the time you had. So I really appreciate it. And just to close, is there, um, how can people get involved if they're interested in their, you know, in their state, if they're curious about this topic and want to fight for positive change, what do they do now? Yeah. Well, you know, go get more information. I always say, if you ha if this hasn't been a light bulb moment, Catherine is much better than I am. Yeah. So there's, there, there's a TEDx that's floating around on YouTube. Uh, that's easy to find. Obviously, the book, if you want to read, there's, you know, there's uh, plenty of other interviews and things to check out. And then, you know, from there, if you're ready now or you want to you know, read or, or listen or watch more, um, go to our website, which is political-innovation.org, ways to get in touch with us. And we are, I think, getting really good at responding very quickly and helping 
you know, here, learn who people are and then, you know, direct them here. There's something that's actually going here. Well, we can make an introduction or maybe something over here or let's sit tight and, and let's see what develops. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's um, one of my favorite people in the space who I've been lucky to be around a little bit. Her name is Katie Fahey. She was uh, the uh, young lady who won and started and won the gerrymandering reform effort in Michigan. And okay. one of her one of her superpowers was anybody that came to her with wanting to do something, she just had this magical ability of figuring out how to get people there. So, you know, we're going to try to go to, go to school from Katie and really figure out how to help people get involved. So that that's a great point to end on. Like if somebody is listening to this and super excited about the idea and wants to actually do something, they should reach out to you guys because you're, you know, you'll basically have the tools and resources to try and, and get like-minded people together to get something done. Yeah. Of all stripes, this is a cross-partisan effort, and we can do this. It doesn't have to be this way, Jim. We can do this. Excellent. Thank you very much, Saul. I appreciate you taking the time. Great. Really nice to talk to you, and, and best of luck with, with uh, Independent Riot. And there it is, everybody. Some terrific information from Saul Lieberman, the executive director from the Institute of Political Innovation on what they are attempting to achieve to make government work better for everyone and the ideas and specific things that you can get involved in and support in order to help make those positive changes. And I strongly, highly encourage you to check in the links below to not only check out the original 2017 competition in the politics industry study that we referenced by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. That's for free. You can check out to, to learn more about the ideas of politics industry theory, but then also consider picking up a copy of their uh, more extensive and in-depth book, The Politics Industry, which goes into in more detail the this concept and how you can get your head around it as i mentioned before as well feel free to go back and check out our third episode of the independent riot where we speak with independent voter news national editor sean griffiths because these are the same topics that we cover in that discussion and we hit it from a slightly different angle and go into some other aspects of it, which uh, might help fill in any gaps for you or help clarify the concept. And as well as I'm thinking about it, um, you might want to check out on the YouTube channel, the Independent Riot YouTube channel, we've got a very short video of called What the Hell is the Duopoly in Five Minutes or Less. To me, the big takeaway from all of this is uh, Saul Lieberman is giving you some specific things that you can do and get behind in order to make positive change. But to me, the biggest thing that can be done is subtly just shifting your mental perspective from outsourcing all of your political thinking to supporting either a Republican or Democratic narrative to changing your mindset to be looking for better solutions, independent thinking solutions. And again, that doesn't mean that you can't be a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Green Party member or ideally, in my mind, an independent, meaning that you put certain principles above any party loyalty. But the idea is just to, we need to shift our perspective from buying into the polarization so much because these are two private institutions, the Republicans and Democrats. And intuitively, if you think about it, you know that neither one of them completely sums up your beliefs as a person or the way society should ideally be ran. They just don't, for, for the vast majority of people, 
neither one of those two is an optimal answer. And so what I believe and am trying to uh, highlight with this channel is that it's okay to not believe that. It's okay to not be members of all of these different labels, whether you're talking politics or religion or something else. It's all these big life issues. It's okay to think for yourself and it's okay to find and support independent thinking solutions that don't go with the dogma of some particular already established label. So to me, that is the big takeaway from this episode is just to start thinking for yourself and also start talking to other people about the concept of not buying into the red or blue solution for everything, but finding a solution that works better for everyone. And if you like that kind of thinking, please consider liking this video, subscribing to the channel, and maybe even throwing us a few bucks a month over Patreon to make sure that we keep independent thinking content coming your way. And as well, if you know of somebody that we might should interview, please email us at info at independent.me. But whatever you do, wherever you are, just keep thinking for yourself and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Independent Riot Podcast, your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please do us a huge favor and leave a quick positive review on whatever platform you're using. It's free to you and super easy to leave us a good ranking and really help spread the word about the podcast to other independent thinking folks. Thanks for listening and please go ahead and subscribe so we can be sure to see you next time.